I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interac. The age of the personal check is coming to a close. While tools such as Interac eTransfer have largely taken their place for personal use, many businesses are still reliant on checks. 54% of businesses believe they are spending too much time on payment processing. What will it take for companies to finally ditch the check? Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know way more about the starting lineup of the 1989 Toronto Blue Jays than I do about our members of Parliament. And that's kind of a problem. So on this show, I'm inviting really smart people into the studio to explain stuff to me like I'm five. Today, I'm talking to Helena Gaspar, the Director of Governance and Institutions at the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Helena, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Um, what do you do for a living? What's your What's your gig? So I have um, I have a job that I think is a lot of fun, partially because I got to uh, to make it up. But I actually work in politics and money, and so what that means is I oftentimes use money as a lens for analysis to solve a problem, or I use money as a tool to find a solution to a policy problem. So we do a lot at the Institute, actually. And for instance, now we're working with the Assembly of First Nations and with the First Nations Caring Society to actually cost a First Nations child welfare. So what would a better program look like for kids? What needs to go into that program? And money for us is actually the tool. Right. So it helps identify how things are working, how programs are performing. But money, too, is just so closely connected to democracy, and we forget that oftentimes. Right. So the other part of what I do tends to be a little bit more international-focused, and we get to do things like um, work with established countries or, or developing countries and work with them to set up or to refine their institutions. So, for instance, um, I'm working with the government of Jamaica right now to help them set up an independent fiscal council. So effectively a watchdog that would support their continued transition toward better fiscal management. That's amazing. <laughs> it's sort of fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Um, so that also means that you are the perfect person to explain to me what what I need explained today. So um, I know what happens when I go to buy something in a store and I use a, a debit card, uh, you know, money comes out of my bank account to pay for it. And I know what happens if I use a credit card. Um, I... Uh, and borrowing that money from another institution, I've promised to pay them back within a certain amount of time. Otherwise, I pay uh, you know a penalty on it. Um, but how does our government buy things? Because they don't have like, or or do they? Do they have a debit card with a bank that they go out and just use? So I, I think this is such a it's a, such a great question because it's one of those things that I'm going to guess a lot of us really don't think about. No, right? We interact with the federal government, with provincial government, with municipal government, virtually every day, multiple times a day. But we don't really think about how they do things. And so when it comes to money, at least federally, um, Canada has this thing, this pot of money called the Consolidated Revenue Fund. Okay. We call it the CRF. So the CRF is this big pot. Any money in Canada for the federal government that is either a revenue or expenditure, so any money that goes into the pot or out of the pot, sits within the CRF. That's like their big pool of money that they can draw down from or the big pot to which they add money when they get revenues. So everything sort of starts there. So in order for um, the government to really do anything with money, they have to have a plan. 
and they have to actually take that plan to Parliament. Okay. And this is something I think everybody forgets. One of the principal reasons Parliament exists is actually to approve or reject executive plans for spending. So back in like 1215, right, King John was spending tons of money, was, you know, extorting money from people, was going to war all over the place. And this group of barons were really angry with him. (laughs) Exactly, because he was spending their money. And so they said, look, either we are going to get rid of you or you're going to have to start taking advice and we're going to start monitoring what you do. So instead of getting his head chopped off, he signs the Magna Carta in 1215, which is this long document with a list of things that he's going to do. And one of of those elements on the list is actually letting the barons know when he's going to spend money and seeking some sort of general consensus, some sort of general approval before he goes out and raises more money to do whatever he wants to do with it. And so in today's terms, that practice essentially involved into the parliaments that we have today. And that's why legislators, whether it's a Congress or whether it's a parliament, the fundamental role of these legislatures is to say, okay, executive branch, you can now spend public money or no executive branch, you can't, you can't spend, spend money, money on that. Okay. Um, and so that does lead into kind of the next question. You know, when I wanted to buy a house that cost more than the amount of money that I had in the bank, I, I took out a mortgage on the house. And that was a, a process, you know, that <laughs> had a lot of parts to it. But what does that look like for a country? Like, we do we take a mortgage out on the country? Do we take a mortgage out on a national park? Like, it's actually a fair analogy, right? So, once a year, there's the big circus in Ottawa that is Budget Day, right? Yeah. All of the journalists, all of the wonky, like the policy wonks, government, everybody's really excited because on that day, the Minister of Finance, the government with the government behind them, is going to table their plan for the upcoming year. That budget plan talks about how they understand the state of the economy, talks about how they understand the spending, um, or pardon me, how they understand the current fiscal state of the country and any spending plans that they're going to, that they're going to engage. Okay. Right? So they, they present this plan. It has all of these pieces to it. The good stuff is actually at the back of the budget, right? The tables, the charts that no one reads. It's not right. the narrative part. It's all the stuff at the back that just look like a bunch of numbers. And so they also tell us, you know, how are our debt levels? You know, what are we paying on national debt? You know, how much do we anticipate spending um, on programs? this year. Um, What do we think the economy is going to look like? Is the economy, do we think, uh, will grow? Or do we think it's going to shrink, right? So it's all of these assumptions that underlie what they're going to do. And so when the government then presents that plan, that becomes the blueprint. We get to see where their priorities are. We get to see if they are going to raise taxes, if they're going to cut taxes. And very much to your point, we get to understand whether or not the revenues they have collected or anticipate collecting during the year will be sufficient to cover their expenditures. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. So that's that first indicator about a deficit. And at the end of the day, all a deficit really is, is your expenses subtracted from your revenues. Mm-hmm. The same way you or I would do it for our households, um, the government does it at a much broader uh, scale <laughs> yes. and in a much bigger, much bigger way for the country. And so... 
if the government has enough money or chooses not to spend more than the revenue it has, you effectively have a budgetary balance, right? Where the money in equals money out, or you might even have a surplus if you decide you're going to spend less, or you have a windfall for whatever that year. However, if a government decides that they want to spend more than they've made or that they anticipate making, just like you or I have to take out a mortgage to make right. a really big purchase, so do they. So instead of taking out a mortgage, they issue two basic instruments, right? They'll issue bonds or they'll issue treasury bills. And this is an opportunity for uh, investors, for major wealth funds, for pension funds to effectively buy those Canadian debt instruments. And so by making that purchase, they're saying, okay, Canada, we're going to buy this from you, but we expect in return not only what we paid you for it, but then interest on top right. of that, right? right? And so that's effectively how Canada as a country raises money if it doesn't have enough. The difference between those two instruments is that when you're buying bonds, you tend to lock those in for, for certain terms, maybe a year, maybe there are 20 years, maybe there are 30 years, right? It just depends on, on the health or the state you know, of, um, of the economy of that debt at the time, right? How, whether or not that debt is perceived to be you know, good debt, reliable debt, right, right, you right. Know, whether the country is perceived to be credible and reliable. Right, like what's the credit rating of the country? Exactly. Yeah. So the, Canada has a credit rating. Countries all have credit ratings the same way people have credit ratings. Okay. The, the difference is, is instead of, you know, let's say you inputting your information uh, or giving your information to your bank or, you know, a rating agency and then, you know, spitting out a particular number for you, countries get rated by uh, different rating agencies. So places like Standard & Poor, uh, Moody's, Fitch, right? They go all over the world and they talk to people in these countries. They talk to economists and fiscal experts and, and they try to get a picture of what's happening on the ground. Okay. And it's their way of sort of saying, okay, well, the government's saying this. What are other people saying about the state of the economy? Does this make sense? Is Canada a reliable place to do business? Can we have confidence in Canada's economy? Can we have confidence in, you know, uh, Canada's capacity to manage its finances? So Fitch actually was just at our institute last week trying to get a picture uh, of, you know, anticipated economic projections or fiscal projections. Okay. So it's sort of funny the way how granular some of these processes right, right, right. can be. And, and does Canada have a good credit rating? Oh, we are top notch. We have okay. a AAA credit rating now. I mean, okay. that was a different story back in, in the 90s. We were suffering or, or at risk of suffering a bit, but uh, okay. we're back at the top of the class okay. now. All of this, uh, this makes sense to me. The part of it that scares me a little bit is that if I think of my own budget, if I were continually spending more than I was bringing in, if I was, you know, running a, a household deficit without a plan to eliminate that deficit, I would get myself into trouble at some point. How does that work for a country? Because we have we have a national debt, right? It's a. How, do you know how much it, it is? So. Um our, our national debt right now, uh, I think for the first time in our history, is just about $1 trillion. That's a, okay? a lot of money. So, so it's, yeah. it's a lot of money. We have $1 trillion of debt. Our economy, the size of our economy, is roughly $2 trillion. Okay. okay? So when we talk about that $1 trillion in debt, there are different ways we can calculate the value of that debt. There's the um, the net debt calculation, which oftentimes is the calculation a government might use to report on the debt. Because when we use the net debt calculation, that means we take 
all of um, all of our gross liabilities, right? But we subtract all of our financial assets. So anything that we have that right. we can that we think we can, we like can turn into cash, okay. exactly. Okay. Anything we think we can liquidate, we then you know subtract from that big number of gross liabilities. So if you take Canada's net debt calculation. Right, we're at somewhere around six hundred billion dollars plus or minus fifty, you know, here or there. Right. Okay. okay. Um, so that just a rough order of. It's magnitude. like we have four hundred billion dollars worth of things <laughs> that we could sell if we needed to pay off this debt today. Presumably, okay. but yeah. but that's also assuming that we can turn all of those assets into cash virtually at the drop of a hat. Right. 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 And that's not always a straightforward <laughs> no. exercise. Yeah. So I think the important message here is when we're talking about one trillion dollars of debt, that's like you or I having in more maybe practical terms a mortgage of $300,000, right? Okay. So even if you or I may have assets worth $1 million, we still have a $300,000 mortgage. Whether or not we can turn that $1 million of assets into cash at the drop of a hat is a totally different question. Right, because it has to do with like the day-to-day operation of, of paying for the house. Okay, exactly. Okay, that kind of makes sense. We're worried about the number for a few different reasons. Because debt by itself is just... It's, it's debt, right. right? But we actually have to pay interest on our debt. Yeah. And so because Canada has to pay interest on its debt, we're worried about the value or the amount of money we're spending right. on right, those right, right. debt payments. Yeah. So when interest rates change, so too do our debt payments. Same thing for you right. and me, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So generally... I just, I just redid a mortgage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah, you feel yeah, the pain, yeah. right? So when interest rates are low... Debt may conceptually, national debt may be conceptually more manageable because we're paying, right? right we're paying lower, right. you know, payments effectively on yeah. our debt. And money's also cheaper. So you can borrow more at a cheaper rate, pay less interest on your debt. You think everything's going really well. Right. The challenge is if A, interest rates change, or there's some, you know, shock, economic or otherwise, that all of the sudden destabilizes things. Yes, okay. And when things are destabilized, that's the big problem. Because then what do you do? You still have to pay your interest on your debt. And so if we take the Canadian context right now, our debt levels are perfectly manageable right now. Our economy is doing well. Uh, interest rates are reasonably low. But if you look just below the surface, A, yes, our debt is growing. Our program spending is growing. And there are other indicators that are changing too. For instance, our demographics are shifting, right? right. The population is aging. We're not replacing ourselves, nor is the workforce going to replace itself overnight. That also means we have more to pay out for pensions. We have more to pay out for old age security, right? So when we think about all of these stresses, on uh, on Canada's books, we need to be a little bit more careful about debt, about accumulating debt, and about how much we're going to be paying on that debt. When it comes to debts and deficits, um, not all deficits are bad, mm -hmm. right? And not all deficits are good. There are different reasons why we might run deficits. So good deficits might, for instance, be um, running a deficit to, say, stimulate an economy. If okay. growth is lagging, government can use its 
big capacity to borrow and can help to, to grease the wheels a bit and to help stimulate demand, create demand. Think about um, after the 2008 financial crisis when, the, um, when Prime Minister Harper's government at the time uh, had a lot of stimulus planning going on. You remember all the blue signs that were everywhere? They were building right. roads, they were right. building arenas, they were building all kinds of things. That was an attempt they went into deficit, but it was an attempt to stimulate the economy. Right. Right. So that can be, you know, an example of a good type of deficit. Right. And that kind of makes sense because if we're simulating the economy, then people are in theory making more money and then that helps us build back out of the hole of the deficit. And so the theory goes. Not yes. always perfectly applied in practice, but so the theory goes. Another good reason to run a deficit may be for a longer term investment. So if the government is borrowing a little bit of extra money to build something that might have an economic return, say infrastructure for instance, okay. right? That might be another form of a good uh, deficit or a reasonable reason to run a deficit. Um, we want to be careful though of, of bad deficits. Right? And bad deficits happen for a number of reasons. Um, you know, the most obvious one is you're just a terrible fiscal manager. <laughs> so that's a pretty easy yeah. one. We hope yeah. we avoid that. Yeah. And Canada, anyway, has sufficient control gates outside of the political realm, you know, to require reporting and everything else. It's not a perfect process, but it should at least help to detract or, or reduce the instances of just terrible fiscal managers. Um, the other, uh, or, or another example of a bad deficit is um, spending for spending's sake, right? Right. So are you just borrowing more money to spend um, without any real outcome or, or real result or, perce- or perceived result, right? So take, for instance, um, the current uh, Liberal government. Their promise during the election campaign was actually to run budgetary deficits. They were elected. Right. Right. Um, so they've been spending in a number of areas. Some of them, you know, perfectly reasonable. You know, making investments or, or supporting, you know, development of, of different groups of, of different initiatives. Perfectly reasonable. But there's a lot of spending that's happening too on something like the middle class, for instance. So we actually right. still don't know who the middle class is. Right. We're not sure yet. We we're not sure whether or not those um, spending choices or that increased deficit um, are having the the right impacts let's say, on the fiscal or on the, the economic state of the country. Okay. And those are things that we want to be mindful of when we're running deficits. Right. And that's why we have a parliament. Yes. Parliament, <laughs> parliament is the watchdog, okay. right? They are, they are there. They are the watchdogs of the, of the public purse. So no money actually, can be raised or spent without them. I have one last question. Uh, when I'm trying to manage my own personal finances, I often talk to my friend Chris because he's a lot smarter than me when it comes to money. Um, who does who does Canada talk to or who does Canada want to model themselves after? Who's really good at this stuff? So I, I want to unpack what you mean by who's really good with okay, money. Yes. Because I think it's worth taking a step back here. So there are three things a government generally does with money. And I know, you know we've mentioned bits and pieces um, in our conversation. The first is, um, can they balance the books over time? Right? Right. Are they sound fiscal managers or or is spending out of control and they're just doing a terrible job of managing the country's finances? That's the first question. The second question is, are they um, aligning spending to their priorities? So if you come to power and you say you are going to... um, support the middle class, you are going to bolster military spending. Are you actually doing what you said or what you promised to do with money? So we can we can monitor that, we can track that. Right. And the third thing is, you know, what results are you getting from your spending? So when we think about who spends money well, we actually want to think about it across those three dimensions. Okay. So it's not just a single thing. 
And so there are a lot of international examples of who does this well. And there's there's this survey called the Open Budget Survey that um, the International Budget Partnership runs every two years. Canada just participated for the first time last year, and it was um, our, our institute that completed the survey on behalf of Canada. And we got placed with all of the 100-plus countries that participated. And um, the results were interesting. So when it comes to uh, transparency, right? So how are you reporting? Are you reporting regularly? When you report, is the information useful? We sit at about a solid B- for that. Okay, okay. When it comes to how we engage citizens in budgeting, right? Do we tell people what's going on? Do we get their opinions? The global average was 12 out of 100. Canada was it 39 out of 100. Okay. Right? So, well, so we're doing better than everybody else, but we're... Meager okay. all the way around. And then, and then you know, lastly, when it comes to things like oversight, you know, we, we got a passing grade, but then when you drill a little bit deeper and you look at legislative oversight, like, is our parliament actually equipped to do its job? Mm-hmm. Our results were abysmal. We were less than 30 out of 100. Um, so so that, that's a really important wake-up call, right? Okay, Just yeah. in terms of how we compare to other countries. So places like Sweden, like New Zealand, like Norway, like South Africa, they tend to do much better than we do on things like transparency, right? Okay. Um, how- and, and is part of that size, like the size of the country? Well, I mean, I have to say we were just below the US when it came to transparency oh, okay. too. Yeah. So so it's not necessarily about size, right? It's actually about practices and how you report what you report um, and the content um, of what you produce as a country and what you make available. There, it's also worth mentioning that um, some countries like the United Kingdom, New Zealand and Australia have actually adopted legislation, fiscal charters, that are designed uh, to help steer a government's financial management. And not to tell them how much they can or cannot spend, but it's designed to be a framework or a series of guideposts that would help to ensure that um, they're planning effectively, that they're accountable for decisions, right. and that they're regularly reporting. Okay. So in New Zealand, for instance, they have all of these principles in their charter, and it says you have to have debt at reasonable levels. You know, you have to be mindful of future generations, and this is a really important one, especially for Canada today, right? If we're able to manage our debt now, you know, think of the next generation. If something goes south, they're going to be the ones stuck. With a trillion dollars of debt. With a trillion dollars of debt and all of the interest payments and all of the ramifications of that, right? So that's why sometimes these these tools like fiscal charters can be helpful anchors because they sort of help steer government. They can't tell a government what to do. Right. I mean, it's, it's not that severe of a piece of legislation, yeah. but they tend to be useful guideposts. And so those are the types of things that can be useful tools. And so when we're looking elsewhere, um, sometimes a adopting some of these practices can help refine our own processes. We have some really good ones in Canada. Mm-hmm. We have good rules and, and you know, uh, good practices. And even this government can actually be commended for its work relative to, to debt. And they, they passed a piece of legislation that now requires any government to go to Parliament with its debt plan. So not only do you have to go to Parliament for spending, but when you're incurring debt, you have to show Parliament how um, you anticipate, you know, repaying that, what your assumptions are right. about the ramifications or the potential challenges are of incurring that debt. So that's actually a, a great practice and something that uh, that Canada should be really pleased with. Awesome. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Elena. That was a pleasure. Um, where can people find you on the internet? I am on Twitter, so it's um, at uh, my name, Helena Gaspard, um, and um, they can always find me through the Institute of Fiscal Study and Studies and Democracy's website, so ifsd.ca. Fast, safe, and reliable, Interact eTransfer is one of the best ways to send, request, and receive money. In fact, Canadians used the service to complete 371 million transactions in 2018. That's nearly 11 times the population of Canada. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.